this week's episode of the Why Marketing Podcast, we have Neil Etheridge, the Chief Marketing Officer at Disco. During our time together, we covered a lot of interesting topics, including how his technical background actually made him a better marketer, why the structure of a marketing team matters, how he's able to keep up with all the different marketing trends and technologies, and what motivated him to run a customer experiment using Ferraris and Lamborghinis. So now, let's jump right into this week's episode with Neil telling me all about the early days of his career. My career uh, journey started back in the late 90s. I actually had a very technical background, and so I started in the software industry uh, on the implementation and consulting side of things. Uh, Very technical, and actually back then implementing software for storing uh, huge amounts of data on what was called cold storage. Uh, So big optical disks, you know, huge amounts of data, long since gone in today's world. From there, I actually made a shift into the legal technology space, which, you know, in many ways is where I still am today. Um, started with a company called PC Docs that enabled lawyers, regardless of whether they were in law firms or in corporations, to be able to store all of their kind of legal documents. So when someone was sitting inside of Microsoft Word, when they would press save, PC Docs software would kick in and allow them to organize that data by client and matter and document type, things like that, instead of just kind of the traditional folder structures that existed. And it was actually there was my first step into kind of a pre-sales role. From that, I really started working with customers, starting to understand a lot of customer needs, pain points, how to position a product as a solution, how it can address their particular, again, needs and problems. And that kind of put me on the path of sales engineering through to kind of product evangelism. As you fast forward a little bit, that evolved into a product marketing role where I started to take a lot of those things that were done one-on-one in meetings and be able to build them up to a larger audience, right? So this would be more public speaking, uh, creating a lot of marketing content that would be, uh, like I said, kind of documenting the things that traditionally I would have just said in a meeting. Uh, That led me into the e-discovery space, which is the space that Disco, where I am now, uh, occupies which is software that enables the exchange of documents between parties involved in litigation to make that exchange of documents as seamless as possible. And so I spent a number of years at a company called Recommind. We were one of the the leaders of e-discovery in kind of the previous generation of technologies, Uh, you know, helped build that business from uh, about 10 million up to about 83 million. And then uh, Disco actually reached out and found me. So this was back in 2015. At the time, you know, Disco was very much a startup as kind of this third generation of e-discovery tools or platforms uh, in this space and reached out and said, you know, we would love to discuss with me about uh, really ramping up the marketing function. And so uh, I met with the founders here at Disco and was just blown away with their vision and blown away with the technology that they had. And I saw there was tremendous upside for us to build, you know, a fantastic business. If you think back back then when I joined Disco, I think we were about 30 people. As you look at us today, we're around 350. We've done that in just four years. We've been more than doubling every single year. How do you think, it's, it's interesting because I, I, you look at some, you know, from a marketer's perspective, how do you think that coming from the, the technical and sales side of the house helped you become a better marketer? I think the the biggest advantage with my particular background is having sat for years face-to-face in the room with potential buyers. 
And so I think a lot of the time marketing practices can be based on a lot of theory or others' best practice. But I think having sat in that seat, looking the potential buyer in the eye and understanding what really resonates and what doesn't, I think having that experience and then being able to apply it en masse across you know, multiple different marketing channels and different campaigns, I think that's been a big advantage in my career. I assume you probably still do a lot of that sitting around, really digging in with the customers to really understand what the challenges are. As much as I can, for sure. Uh, you know, I think the big insight that I've always had in the marketing practices we do today is work out where the customer wants to be, work out how to meet them where they're at, right? It's very easy to say, uh, we should market in the following way for the following reasons, but frequently you're not asking, is the customer looking for us in that particular way? I always think that, you know, with the convergence of really sales and marketing, because they're really becoming one now. So salespeople, I think, will have a real advantage in, in transitioning into more strategic marketing roles uh, going forward. And are you seeing that kind of happening in your own marketing department? Are you bringing people in from traditional sales to kind of lead different marketing functions? I'm not seeing uh, a lot of kind of horizontal movement between sales and marketing at kind of those lower levels. But I, I think as I look at a lot of my peers, be them CMOs or CROs, I am seeing kind of hops back and forth between, between sales and marketing, or even as you mentioned, a, a newer trend of really uniting the two under a single, uh, single leader. And I think the benefit of that is one of the age old problems between sales and marketing is it's easy to blame the other. <laughs> you know, we don't have enough leads. Here's more leads. Well, we need better quality leads. Well, you guys aren't closing them correctly. And the benefit of having a leader that has sat in both camps and one that now runs both when possible is there's no one to blame, right? Everyone's on the same team. Yeah, I think it also helps too when uh, the marketing leaders and the CROs or the head of marketing are working very closely together. For sure, yeah. You know, let's talk about Disco and what all y'all provide. It's a fascinating business and, and the growth has been phenomenal. Can we dive a little into you know, what you are doing over at Disco? Yeah, 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 for sure. One interesting thing um, you know, that we come up against quite a lot is when you say legal technology, uh, you, it's easy to think of this as niche or think of this as a, as a vertical. And it's fascinating because if I said to you, is sales a vertical? You immediately would say no, right? That if you look at a company like Salesforce, it was taking a horizontal function that exists in every business in the world almost. And so does legal, right? Legal is a function that exists in every company. And uh, it has been very much underserved from a technology point of view. And so from Disco's kind of inception, our goal is to build the technology platform for the practice of law. Now we've started in a specific area of that, which is discovery. And again, I can talk more about that in a second, but our vision is so much broader, right? The idea is that any lawyer that sits in that horizontal function called legal logs into Disco to be able to do their job better, faster, more efficient than ever before. So like I said, we started in discovery. So discovery, like I mentioned a little bit on the intro is the practice where you know, there are two, two companies involved in litigation. What has to happen is a collection of all documents that may be relevant to that case by both parties. Then they will have to have a collection of lawyers review those documents to see whether they are in fact relevant to the case and to ensure that they are not privileged documents. So it could be, you know, correspondence between an employee and the general counsel that's privileged. That information may not have to be shared. And then they will review those documents and then exchange them between the two parties. This is one of the most expensive parts of the legal process. 
If you think about it, we had a case where the discovery involved 165 million documents that had wow. to be reviewed. And the old school way of doing this would literally be bankers boxes full of paper with lawyers in war rooms reading document by document by document, typically just in date chronology order. What DISCO does is it brings that practice into the modern age by, of course, making everything digital, making reviewing documents happen at, at lightning speed. But as to your point, it also applies AI. Now, if you think of that stack of documents, there's going to be a time where a very large percentage of the ones that you've collected are actually not relevant. But traditionally, you'd still have to look at them to say, yep, these are not relevant. And well, that was a good use of my time. And instead, you're getting down to, you know, the X percent that actually are relevant and will be shared with the other side. Because hey, somebody's so, paying for those hours. Oh, yeah. Again, it's a huge, huge cost in the, in the, in the litigation process. Uh, instead, Disco AI, as we call it, is in essence automatically reading all of those documents. It's learning what it means to be a relevant or responsive document by watching the behavior of the lawyers reviewing them and then learning what those documents are about. And then Disco AI can both prioritize, in other words, push all of the most relevant documents to the front of that review, or even be able to suppress and categorize the documents that are non-relevant. In other words, you no longer need to put human eyes on all of these. And imagine if you could, you know, reduce the number of hours spent in a review by 60%, the dollar value to that is material to say the least. Plus, it also moves court cases along faster. You would hope so. <laughs> the, the, the legal process, you know, it, itself uh, has a lot of other areas that technology innovation will be able to help with. But I think what it definitely does is it gives you insight into your legal position much earlier. Right. If you think about kind of the, the famous smoking gun, if your company does have a smoking gun, I'm sure you'd much rather know about it on day one of the review than day 100. Uh, again, because you would be, you know, you wouldn't have spent all that money on the review. You'd probably decide from a strategy point of view, we're going to try to settle this one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so it's about being informed as early as possible. So you were also talking about the fact that you're using AI to understand the relevance of it. Are there other areas in which you're employing AI? Yeah. So another area would be that, that example I gave of a document being privilege. So this is where it's communication between a lawyer and someone else uh, seeking legal advice. That's one of those things that traditionally can be quite hard to find through different searches and so on. And so Disco AI, again, can start to build a model of, in this case, what are privileged documents. So that's a huge time saving. Another one could be not just about whether it's relevant to the case, but what part of the case is it relevant to? Imagine you had you know, uh, an IP infringement case and it could say, hey, I think all of these documents show infringement for that pattern. That would be super useful instead of it just relevant to the overall case. So those are some of the, the, the main use cases. Another would be think of an internal investigation, right? We believe this person has done X, Y, Z. Well, you would be able to, in essence, find something that looks relevant and then say, find me more like this. And again, across millions of documents, being able to have the system automatically narrow down and deliver to you, you know, the things that are either going to prove or disprove your case or your investigation. I have a thing from a marketer's perspective, it's got to be really fun to be in that environment and have a product like that to be able to really market and get, sink your teeth into. Uh, so can we talk a little bit about the way you kind of structured your marketing team over at Disco? A lot of the time in B2B, uh, you're dealing with buyers that have things like renewal dates and contract life cycles. 
Interestingly, in our space, a lot of the time, our potential buyers have no such kind of contract lifecycle. Instead, it's, I have a case, I need discovery now, and then I don't have a case, I don't need it. And so when one of our buyers becomes a buyer is very close to impossible to predict. And so that creates a very unique marketing challenge. How can I remain top of mind for you for the day, which I do not know, suddenly you need us without pushing you so far that you want, you know, no communication from us, no, no information from us. So that's, that's a unique challenge. So let me tell you a bit about the team. Uh, so in the marketing team here, there's really two kind of primary functions to it. One that I call the core marketing team. And think of that as your traditional marketing functions, inbound, outbound, digital events, field, social, PR, Marcom, et cetera. And then I also have in, in Disco's marketing team, the SDR function. And so we see sometimes that lives in sales, sometimes it lives in marketing. Uh, here at Disco, it, it lives in marketing. And some of the rationale behind that is when you have buyers that are unpredictable when they're going to be a buyer, also when they're doing a task like discovery, which isn't an exciting task for the lawyers, a lot of those traditional kind of marketing approaches that, you know, we, we need to buy X number of keywords to ensure it's top of Google is less important here because think about it. A lot of the time, a lawyer isn't sitting down, pulling up Google and going, what's the best new e-discovery? Instead, they're going, oh, I've got to do discovery again. I'll do it the way I've always done it. And so we have to be much more kind of outbound focused. So our SDR team uh, has been a, a very successful kind of lead generation channel for us here. You know, it's a team that we started the experiment back in 2015 with just adding one SDR. And I believe the SDR team today is about 40. Okay. And we plan to grow that to close to 100 uh, within the next 12 months. Wow, that's a big growth. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's one of those things that culturally we believe in running experiments that you can time box, you can financially box, and you can measure, and then run those experiments and either kill them if they fail or quadruple down on them if they're successful. And I think every function in Disco, not just in, in marketing, has been built that way, right? Take, take something that might be a crazy idea, experiment with it, and if it works, go for it. And if it doesn't, don't be prideful, just be happy enough to kill it. Absolutely. I mean, experimenting is critical for marketers and adapting and pivoting and being very nimble because the market is constantly shifting. But I think also be, be prepared to, to do crazy experiments. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all too often that, you know, marketers will have their playbook and, you know, they'll implement their playbook maybe with some changes, but here's the standard things we do that have a slightly different flavor for this company, but do crazy things too and see what happens. A simple example from a few years ago, we found there were particular prospects that simply would not engage with us. And so uh, this was before the FCC put the controls around this. But remember when drones were the big hot thing? Yep. And so as our experiment, we went out and bought 10 really good drones. We opened up the boxes and we took the remotes out and we put a little card in and said, you know, don't you hate it when things are incomplete? And we'd love to deliver your remote and talk to you about Disco. And we sent it to 10 prospects that would just not engage with us. It had a 90% conversion rate. We've done, so, done similar called action campaigns. They're, they're, they work fantastic. They're not cheap, but they're highly effective, especially if you're going after the right audience. Yeah. As long as you are correctly profiling and going after the right targets, yep. then they're highly effective. If you just kind of shotgun them out there, 
they're going to fail. You know, another example is at a, a lot of conferences where you'll see, you know, people spend a lot of money on big parties. And my question is, while you may get great attendance, are you earning the right from those attendees for follow-up? Yeah. The answer is no. I mean, you, you, you know, you gave them a beer. You know, one of the things, again, we did a couple of years ago is we took 30 highly, pro, highly targeted prospects and, you know, we put them in Lamborghinis and Ferraris to drive around a racetrack. Now, the cost of that event versus a, a happy hour is actually the same, but the re return you get from those 30 people is infinitely higher. And so, I, yeah, I, I just believe in, you know, experiment, do interesting things that might even seem crazy and just be strict in measuring the results. Because at the end of the day, they're people, they're still people. And they want to be spoken to and marketed to like a person. And the more fun they can have, the more engaging you can have, the better the results. Completely. And I think it's every interaction that you have with someone, uh, while of course the end goal is for them to become a customer, my view is it's really about that interaction is, is hopefully earning you the right for the next interaction. Yeah. And then that one is earning you the right for the next one and so on and so on and so on. Um, that's kind of been the way I look at it. Yeah, perfect client experience. It's all about the experience and giving them something that they're going to remember. So what are some of the different areas of success that you've really been able to get your message out there about what you're doing? Since it's not your traditional monthly subscription, it sounds like it's case by case typically is when they're engaging. Yeah, that's correct. And so the, the trick is really being able to stay top of mind, not to the point of annoyance. And so for us, it is using multiple channels, right? So of course, our SDRs uh, are reaching out through email, through social, uh, through phone, and connecting with our prospects. Uh, in addition, we use some of the more traditional kind of digital marketing um, approaches through you know, highly targeted uh, email campaigns. We do minimal kind of digital ad spend on things like uh, LinkedIn and Google AdWords and so on. But for us, that's not a, a big channel. Um, but it does allow us to you know, subtly, again, stay top of mind. Uh, I think creating a lot of relevant content that isn't just educational about disco, but educational about our industry. And we like to push that out. One of the reasons is within the e-discovery world, there are a number of kind of lawyers who are very much involved in e-discovery. But the lion's share of litigators out in the law firms that you've probably come across uh, in your life they, they are not deep on understanding e-discovery, the, the rules, the best practices, and all those kind of things. So we want to be able to help educate those people who are not, you know, uh, obsessed with e-discovery about what it is and how you can do it better, which, of course, in turn, always helps Disco. Have you ever found any lawyers that are obsessed with e-discovery? Yes. They typically really? have e-discovery e in their title. Uh, I got you. And so you will typically find in the larger law firms that there will be, you know, uh, e-discovery attorneys, uh, and that is their specialty. Um, but in, you know, in, say, a litigation boutique that while they still handle some of the most high-profile cases in the country, they don't have, you know, an army of e-discovery people on staff yeah. uh, to help. I, I would think that what you're able to provide is you talk about driving efficiencies, time, costs down for these law firms. They've got, once they start using you, you would think that that would almost be automatic where you're like top of the call list whenever there's a, a project like that. Yeah. And, and we see that in, you know, in our growth metrics, the growth that we see for a new customer of Disco over, uh, you know, over a couple of year period is just off the charts. Yeah. And part of that is our product in comparison to the previous generation is truly a generational leap, right? In that same way, you know, when you 
put down your BlackBerry and picked up your iPhone, or you put down your Nokia and picked up your BlackBerry. There's that huge generational shift in performance, usability, functionality, et cetera. That same thing happens in our industry. Why do you and think so, that is? Is that because it, do you think it's because it's native to the cloud or what makes that leap so much? Well, I think ignoring disco, I think it just happens in all technology, right? I think you would agree there was a, you know, a leap from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray. You know, we, there may be intermediaries, but we always forget about them along the way. And so I think you could pick any part of tech, those same generational leaps happen. Why do I believe that Disco has been one of those generational leaps? I think it is the availability, scalability, and compute of the cloud, and us investing heavily in leveraging that and thinking of the cloud almost like, you know, the new operating system. I think our unique uh, domain expertise of building a product that actually makes sense to the litigators that use it uh, because of the huge bench of former, uh, former lawyers that we have inside of the company. And then thirdly, I think is timing as well, right? That the generational shifts do play around timing. And I think as you look at the adoption and the acceptance of the cloud as a very safe, arguably safer than anything you can do on-prem, highly scalable, change in economics. I think all of those things together is why this shift has taken place. Because you see it a lot where every time the shifts happen, especially in technology, the companies that are your traditional software, where it would be downloaded before you got native to the cloud, those companies were slower to evolve versus saying something that starts off as a SaaS business is going to just move quicker and faster. Even though the other folks had the advantage because they were already there, they yep. just, for whatever reason, weren't able to keep up at that pace. And even when they do make that transition, it seems like they almost move at a slower pace. Yep. Yep. Agreed. And it's, it's also, you know, people like Guy Kawasaki have written about it. It's, it's where you get that point of becoming a slave to the revenue. Yeah. Right. All you can focus on is ensuring that what you do that generates your current revenue, you become hyper-focused on that, that you lack the ability to make that generational shift yourself. Right. The, the smart thing to do would be recognize it's coming and, you know, on the side, start from scratch, do this thing again. But very rarely do you see businesses do that. So a couple last questions as we start to get towards the end of the episode. What are some of the ways that you stay current and relevant when it comes to marketing best practices? I try to uh, get out into, you know, marketing conferences, ensure that I'm, uh, you know, attending uh, webinars and so on about the latest trends, the latest technologies that, of course, can be difficult at times uh, with a busy schedule. And so I rely also on my team being able to go out and get a good understanding of, you know, what are new and interesting uh, technologies, trends, best practices that we might want to adopt. I try to spend a lot of time in the field talking to customers and talking to prospects. Uh, I do think it's interesting to spend time uh, even talking to people who have become Disco customers, what worked and what didn't from a marketing point of view. Uh, they'll give you actually very good, open, honest feedback uh, to adjust a lot of what we do. Um, and then I think it just comes back to that culture of experimentation that we talked about. Stay on top of what's happening, run controlled experiments to see whether that new innovation technology best practice moves the needle for disco. And if it does, excellent, go for it. And if it doesn't, you know, hey, it was a good experience, good experiment and move on to the next. So let's hit the speed round now. Um, I'm just gonna ask you a couple quick questions, just rapid fire back. What's your favorite holiday? Wow, that should be a simple question, but surprisingly difficult. Uh, let's go Halloween. Halloween, 
There like you go. It. Uh, place you most want to travel, but you've never been. Uh, that would be Japan. Okay. Are you a dog or cat person? Dog. Okay. And last one, what piece of advice do you wish uh, you had been given when you were just starting out your career? Never be afraid to ask questions to anyone at any time. And the only measure that you should use, whether it is too bold, too daring, or too inappropriate, is if you were the other person and someone asked you that, how would you react? That's great. I love it. I, I love being you know inquisitive. I love folks that ask a lot of questions. I don't think you can ask enough questions. You never stop learning and soaking in information from others. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, again, where, where we have the SDR team here, and of course, we hire a lot of people very smart straight out of school. You know, that's one of the, the things I try to tell them, right? You know, I've done things like, have you ever stayed in a hotel? They go, yeah, many times. How many times have you been upgraded? You say, never. Go, how many times have you asked? And they say, never. <laughs> and so it can be in the most simple things in life all the way up through, you know, growing your career over decades. Ask questions always. Absolutely. If you don't ask, you don't get. <laughs> you brought something up earlier that I want to just jump back to before we do close out the podcast is you mentioned uh, earlier about marketing to a point where you're not annoying. How do you measure that as a marketer? When do you kind of feel like you've kind of crossed that or, or where you could push up to that? If I had a very simple formula for that, uh, my life would be a lot easier. I think it's about looking at a few different metrics. The simple ones, but when you kind of cross-reference them, you can look at opens against unsubscribes, against calls answered, and take all of those. Then you can also look at, as you run like local events, so there might be someone who isn't opening any of your emails, but you invite them to a local event and they come, you know, you, you can see that my email persistence, while you ignored it, at least it didn't annoy you or anger you to a point. Yeah, I just don't think there's a simple answer yet. Uh, that would be a great piece of software to build. Yeah. <laughs> that could work out for every prospect in your funnel, their, uh, their acceptance or annoyance level of your marketing tactics. I think that, that could make me a lot of money. For sure. I mean, because I look at it, you know, we all get inundated with email marketing and but you could tell a lot of folks just don't do the research beforehand. It's very impersonal. There's nothing that grabs folks. By trying to stay top of mind and persistent is important, but there comes a point where unless there's something there, I'm just always fascinated by how marketers can kind of walk that line of when's too much and when's not enough. Yeah. I think uh, in, the, in the B2C world where that would be amazing is where you see a lot of retargeting. I'm sure you, you get this in your personal life. You know, you're shopping for a piece of furniture or who knows what it is and you're just getting retargeted all the time yeah and i, I just wish there was a technology that knew you know what i bought one of those <laughs> i'll stop yeah, marketing right. to you now yeah. uh, and i think you know in the b2b world we do that better right because you are flagging that person's now a customer but yeah I, to me that's the most annoying is marketing that isn't contextually aware of where you're at in in the process yeah. you know it's like your bank sending you a new customer promotion which, which is not valid for you, right? There's, there's too much kind of generic marketing that is just kind of sprayed to the masses instead of really understanding where anyone is in that particular customer journey. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said on that one because it, it's always amazing. And what I always get really frustrated about too with those offers is usually it's a better deal than what I've already got. 
Oh, yeah, every time. So it actually decreases your customer satisfaction. That's exactly right. It makes me less loyal to them because it's like, why would you give somebody that's not already loyal a better deal? But yep. they don't seem to ever listen to them because I know I'm not the only one that's had that complaint. So, <laughs> But anyways, well, hey, Neil, this has been fun. I really appreciate you sharing some wisdom with us and I look forward to keeping in touch. Sounds good. I appreciate this and uh, thanks for taking the time. Awesome, man. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Why Marketing Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Until the next time.